Good morning. It is almost a balmy 11 today, I believe, but we are now, I think it's four degrees and we're coming into the light. So, <laughs> hello, Brian Dykstra. You've been to St. Louis before, so are you prepared for four seasons in one day? Well, I wasn't prepared for this. I had done the research on like what the average temperature is in St. Louis this time of year and nobody mentioned this. <laughs> but yeah, I brought plenty of winter clothes in case. Well, that's a that's a good thing because uh, you're going to need them. Now, do you live in New York usually? Is that home base? Yes, I do. Upper West Side. Okay. Well, my son that lives in Brooklyn said on Sunday it was like 39 degrees. So well, you're not having Buffalo type weather. My wife's in the Caribbean with her mom. She's been there for three weeks. It's like 88 or 87. Oh, I know. Well, the good news is you're still going to be here for the run of Hold On, which is playing at the the rep, the Black Rep through January 28th. So apparently next week we're going to have higher than normal temperatures. Oh, I, I saw that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So oh, I'm on that. Sure. So it'll be balmy. Well, I think, is this your fourth production in St. Louis, if I recall? Well, um, there's a production from many, many years ago uh, that the rep kind of, the, the repertory theater doesn't really count. Um, it was a sit down with the acting company of a production of Boy Meets Girl that was horrifically bad. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I've, I've been in shows in college where audiences thinned out more than this by the second act of boy meets girl we probably had lost at least a third of the audience and and sometimes more than that so this is my fifth time in st louis oh okay well i recall you in red mm -hmm. which was marvelous and it won you a kevin klein award back when they were they we had kevin klein awards and that was the first time I saw you. And then you came back as LBJ in All the Way in 2015. And that play won our St. Louis Theater Circle Award. So you're on a streak because then the humans, that's your 17, 2017, 18? Uh, okay. Yeah, 17 yeah. or 18. No, yes. 17 or 18 was... Um, his swan, the Stephen Swan song, right? With um, yeah, yeah. So it was the year before that. Oslo, he did Oslo. Oh I yeah. I did Kevin Klein Award for Red. I was nominated, but I I did not. Win. Oh, you did not win. Oh, oh I'm okay. Well, you've been nominated by the St. Louis Theater Circle, I know. So, and then the Humans did win some tech awards because that tech was really cool. Yeah. So you've been on a streak. So now the black rep, and I understand that that I forgot that Ron Himes was in LBJ as Ralph Abernathy. So that's how you knew each other. So now you are here playing LBJ. What's it like playing LBJ again in a different play, but around the same time? What's that feel like? Well, this is actually the third time I was uh, Brian Cox's understudy at, in Lincoln Center when he did Great Society 
which is the sequel to All the Way. Um, so I, it, it's it. I, I have these pair of glasses that I had for the first the first time here, and uh, they gave me um, his glasses, and I took them home. And as I pulled them out to pack them to bring to St. Louis again, I, I, I looked at them and said, "Hello, old friend." And, <laughs> My wife laughed kind of like that. And it's just, I don't know. It's just really comfortable skin to like slip back into. Uh, LBJ is just something that I have a take on that's comfortable and, and, you know, just, it's, he's really fun to play. Uh, you know, he's salty. Manager. Yeah. And he's in a conservative time, but, and he dresses conservatively, but he's not, a concert he acts he's an impulsive dude with a sense of humor so you know who who doesn't have fun doing that oh yeah well it's it's a it's an interesting time period and i was thinking that that all the way was the same period but it's actually 64 and this is 1965 and so hold on is about martin luther king and lb uh, relationship advancing to the voting rights act of 1965 which yeah. happened in in uh august but the selma references happened in march so we're coming up to the 59th anniversary of this and uh, to me because i grew up in the 60s selma is synonymous with the civil rights movement uh you know, you mentioned the Edmund Pettus Bridge, and I know exactly what it is. I know exactly the uh, time frame and what happened, and the, the those images burn in your head. And I've interviewed Freedom Riders before, and I've I'm just familiar with that period. But I think a lot of people aren't. And what do you think is the is the uh, takeaway from this when you're confronted with all this information about what it was like 60 years ago when people could not vote. I like the, uh, yeah, well, not to get too political, dot, 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 but um, yeah, the plays about the voting rights, securing voting rights for disenfranchised, pop, uh, disenfranchised population. So we think, you know, you sort of think of that like, well, that's history and that was then. Uh, we're living in a time where the Supreme Court is systematically one one section at a time dismantling the voting rights act that shelby versus holder took away pre-clearance uh and and as soon as that happened as ruth bader ginsburg warned the you know you, what did, I think she said uh she said to uh the chief justice um you're you're throwing away the umbrellas because you don't think it's raining which is not an apt metaphor because really the umbrellas were kept it, it was raining, we just didn't know it because we had umbrellas. So they threw away the umbrellas and immediately uh, state, um, uh, you know, uh, politicians started making it harder for, I mean, they're gonna argue not for black people to vote or for people of color to vote, but large urban areas, it's harder and the lines are longer and it's, it's and they wanna uh, condense, um, uh, voting opportunities. So we're doing a play showing the reason why we needed to make this voting rights bill happen 
And we're living in a time where the Supreme Court and, and member states of the South, I don't want to, I mean, look, it's happening in South Dakota as well, so I, we can't just aim at the South, but they're um, showing us why we never should have let it lapse. So, so the, the upside of having it happen, we see on stage, the downside of watching it get dismantled is happening in our life. And we do have a Freedom to Vote Act that's very much in discussion. And uh, my sister is a poll worker in South Carolina. And she talks about how they've had this new training. And uh, you cannot, if somebody asks you to help, you have to get somebody else to come with you so that you are never alone with a person that can accuse you of tampering and all this stuff so yeah it's quite it's quite a a different world (laughs) but uh yeah no uh yesterday because it was martin luther king day commemoration i did get emails about the freedom to vote act and i thought well isn't this interesting that 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 this is not just history this is like today and so i hope that the youth that are coming to see your play um, take that away because I'm not sure how old you were, but I was 18 when I got the right to vote. And I was the first 18 year. I was among the batch that, you know, we didn't have to wait till 21 and, and that's beautiful. Right. And people lost their lives for the right to vote. So we need to remember that when we vote, but now we're getting political, but what I find so fascinating about this play is that Selma was at a time that if they went to the courthouse, if black people went to the courthouse to register to vote, they were confronted with so much bigotry and prejudice and impossible standards that they could not meet when the woman says, uh, when the woman recites the preamble of the Constitution, and then she's asked to name all seven, 67 judges, this really happened. And it's just mind boggling when you see this, that this really happened. Yeah. How many, how many bubbles in a bar, in the average bar of soap? I mean, sort of ridiculous questions that were, uh, answerable but never with the right answer and it was only questions that black americans at that time were asked so yeah jim crow yeah jim crow is it's a great example of jim crow now the british playwright paul webb he came opening weekend and he had talkbacks and uh i hope that People not familiar with it would be surprised, but he did write the screenplay to Selma, the movie in 2014, which is, uh, this is reference that because he started the play, then he did the screenplay, then he came back to the play. But one of the things that he did with this new version is he enlarged the role of Coretta Scott King, which I thought was a really good part of the play. Because Evan DeBose 
when she plays Coretta, she's uh, it involves music too. So some of the familiar anthems from the civil rights movement uh, hold on, which is eyes on the keep your eyes on the prize, and then the Sam Cooke number, and then we shall overcome. So those three songs figure prominently into it. So I thought that was a real nice touch. And I thought that uh, using Duncey Dye's set makes the Oval Office this huge focal point. But there are 21 scenes in this play. There are eight scenes in the first act and 13 scenes in the second act. So there's a lot of moving parts here. Yeah, indeed. Uh, yeah. Um, it, it's a problem that I don't face since I'm always in the Oval Office that that sort of, um, you know, other places on the stage. I, I, I never leave the Oval Office. So you'll have to talk to somebody else about the challenges of of like the Brown Chapel is in a and I know that the back room of the Brown Chapel was probably really cramped, but they're pretty cramped down there. And uh, I don't know, I, you know, I wasn't in on those rehearsals. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm sure it's challenging for them. Yeah, well, there's a cast of 14. Mm-hmm. So 21 scenes, 14 people. The how many characters, because most people double, except for, I think, except for Martin and I and Coretta. Right. Double Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's really remarkable. Because uh, I remember when the 50th anniversary of the Selma March was in the summer of uh, 2015. And President Obama led a historic march again mm-hmm. across the bridge. And John Lewis was alive then. Yeah. And uh, I think, uh, I, I just think that that's, I mean, that's nine years ago. So here we are. But Selma, what I liked also is your video projectionist, Zach Cohn. He puts the articles from that time period so we can uh, remember it, so we can, it's refreshed. But also the groundbreaking news coverage of that Saturday night where the people were being beaten Mm -hmm. and the hoses and the dogs and all that. And America got to see it. And sometimes I think you forget how groundbreaking that is because we have 24 seven news now, but that was a huge deal on a Saturday night to cut into the networks and show that. And that's what turned things around as much like Vietnam on the evening news did. So I think that that that's also really Awesome. So the march that caught uh, that the bloody Sunday was March 7th. And then two weeks later, they were allowed to march again. A U.S. district judge did that. So do you think it's good for people before they come to kind of refresh themselves about this period in history? Because I think some people are going to not be connecting the dots. It might be good. I don't know that theater goers very often want to be assigned homework. Yeah, or, that's that's true. Or if they'll do it. 
but I don't. I mean, it's sort of, it's sort of unbelievable when you when you watch it and and the the projections and the news articles and the video sort of makes you understand like, well, no, this is this is what happened. Um, I I don't know if we're also desensitized to the fire hoses and attack dogs because we've seen those clips so often. I think some people of people of a certain age don't know where it's from. So they'll you'll be able to sort of refocus when you're watching the play about when when what happened happened when it happened and why it happened. Like people hate black people is not why attack dogs were being used. People hate the idea of equality is why attack dogs were being used. So uh, I don't know that homework is necessary. It, it couldn't hurt, you know. I mean, because because this is my third LBJ play, there are times when someone will say something about LBJ, and I'll just be like, "No, that's not <laughs> that's not how it was." But okay, you know, it's it's helpful to know, but I don't know that uh, it's 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 a necessity. <laughs> That's true. Well, you can go into it because it the way it's constructed gives you all that information. Sure. And you can, it can be a leap to go research just after. Sometimes I remember uh, just as innocuous as the Carol King musical, beautiful this summer at the, the Muni, people were like, I didn't know she wrote all those songs, you know, and then afterwards they went and looked and and like uh well people will be like I didn't know that, and the movie Hidden Figures about the the people that figured prominently the women that figured prominently into the space program. I didn't you know. know it was like I was like where's this story? How come we don't know this? Right. All these stories pop up that we don't know, <laughs> and it's like well that's why great art introduces you to these things, but. The cast, what's it like working with this cast? Because I know you worked with Ron, but you've never been directed by him. And no, then but... you've got a good mix of, of veteran talent, and then you have these fresh, young performers with a lot of energy. Yeah, it's often the way. As you know, I get as I get older, my friends stay about the same age. I mean, the ones that are friends get older with me, and but I'm always meeting and working with you know, who I would describe as kids now. <laughs> when I was their age, I would have said, I'm not a kid. Um, so that's, that's, no, that's normal in this business, you know, and, and nobody, every, sometimes you'll, and this is not the case in this play, but sometimes you'll get young actors who are sort of, um, they want to take a step back, be in the background, like give you your whatever. And I, you know, have a speech prepared about how, look, we're, we're peers, we're working on the same piece. You got to bring what you can bring so that we can both, uh, you know, challenge each other without being competitive. Because you hear that a lot with actors being, I remember I had a friend of mine who said, I, I want to get on stage with you. I just want to take you on. I just want to, I just want to see who wins. And I'm like, I don't think that's it, dude. I think we're supposed to be there for each other. Um, and this cast is there for each other. Um, I looked around on opening night. Um, Enoch, the guy who plays Martin Luther King, gathered the cast together and and had some inspirational words for opening night. And then he 
looked at me and said, do you have anything to say? And I just said, I'm really happy to do this play with this cast. I, I can't, I can't, you know, I can't, I can't think of anybody I'd rather be doing it with because it's just a tight group of people that are committed to a project and it's, that's all you can ask for. I mean, there's usually one or two people in a cast that are difficult. I haven't met that person. Maybe that makes it me. You know, sometimes at a poker table, if you can't identify the sucker, you should get out. But I, I think we're, we get along pretty well. And uh, there's no uh, exception to that rule that I can see. Well, that's good. During yeah. the during the Emmys last night, one of the writers of the uh, last week tonight with John Oliver uh, was talking and she said uh, that, you know, they appreciated all the support during the strike. And she said, because a third of us are annoying. <laughs> yeah. Well, writers can be. <laughs> so We only have one at a time in the theater. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, when I got to talk to Paul Webb on Friday night, I said, so 23 scenes, because at the time there were 23 scenes. And he goes, oh, yeah, totally reckless. Totally reckless. You know, but, but he has taken a deep dive into American history. And I find that unique, too, of, you know, because he's British. And he finds that this confrontation between MLK and LBJ is fascinating. And it did change history. And their working relationship is contentious sometimes, but also collaborative sometimes. And I like how we learn about that because I think in the history books you just see is like okay martin luther king did this lbj did this but you don't see them work together on it and so much of this play is done in offices and living rooms and the church and right. so you know a lot of the action goes up on stage so you guys had to build relationships so how did you and enoch work together well i mean like most actors you know, they part of the job is committing to a um, kind of a kind of friendship, a kind of working relationship, a kind of openness, a kind of vulnerability that is uh, uh, that allows for chemistry to happen if it if it's going to happen. So uh, I don't know that there was any special or different way. You just sort of come in with with an openness and hope that the other actor has the same sort of theory. And then uh, let's yeah, I should hang on while I get rid of my. Uh, <laughs> I'll turn my focus on. Okay, do not disturb for an hour. Um, uh, and in this case, I had an actor that does. I mean, he's he's really warm uh, uh, and open, and so that's all you can ask for. I, I don't because I don't know how to make it happen if if somebody's. You either have chemistry or not. Well, I mean, you can grow it, but but if someone is going to be sort of, you know, there are a hundred different acting theories and some people sort of come in with their performance pretty set and it's kind of frozen and then what you do has no bearing on what they're going to do. And then in that case, you're sort of like, well, okay, I'll try to build a performance. <laughs> by myself while you've built a performance by yourself. And, and even then, sometimes it looks like you have chemistry. Audiences can't always tell. 
And then I've also heard of instances where people are like completely, totally in love off stage and they have no chemistry on stage. So it's kind of a um, ethereal gossamer thing that I don't know that we actually can afford to think about because then we're chasing something that might be too elusive. You just hope there's a, there's a warmth and an openness. And in this case, I think that, that, that there is. So you have been around a lot because you are New York based and you've been on the New York stage and then you've been around the country on other things, but you've also, what fascinates me. And when I'm looking at your credits, you have TV and film. And of course you have the law and order because that's standard. Right. Everybody does that. Were you a corpse? Sorry? Were you a corpse on Law and Order? No, I've uh I've done four Law and Orders. I found a corpse once. I found the murder weapon once. I was a locksmith and I was an expert on locks and I owned a gun range. And the four that I did. Aha. Uh -huh. Well, I love those. I love the credits because I love to see like, and the blacklist is shot in New York. And, and uh, so you've got some good, um, some good street credits there. I mean, you know, TV credits on the streets, but what is this about Dave Chappelle and deaf comedy jam? Uh, deaf poetry. Deaf um, poetry. Well, uh, I was in, Look, part of your audience is going to like sit up now and be like, what? Uh, <laughs> I, was, I was in the uh, first episode of Chappelle's show and I was in a, a sketch called Blind Hatred where Dave plays a blind white supremacist. He thinks he's white because he was born blind and he's a racist. And I was the guy who drove him around and, and who, well, on set they referred to me as, as his white hand man. So I drove him around and I stood behind him during the famous speech where he's got the KKK hood on, nodding my head and, and agreeing with every point that he was making. And I'll tell you, I'll be on a set where there's a young crew and we're shooting something and that will come up. And this, the whole crew will go from, you know, sort of interested in doing what they're doing to like, wait, what? Jasper's here? And uh, it was just, yeah. So uh, I did that in the same season that I appeared on HBO Deaf Poetry that most deaf hosts, and which made me the only person other than Dave Chappelle and most deaf to appear on both those shows in the same season that I know of. <laughs> well, I think that's a good credit to have. I mean, it's really weird what happens in your career. You're like, you're going along and all of a sudden you get a job. Like my agent didn't want me to do the Chappelle show. She's like, they're only paying uh, some ridiculously low figure. They're not paying anything. I don't know what this is. And, and I was like, well, okay, but well, let's do it anyway. And, and that all of a sudden it's the highest grossing uh, DVD ever. Like the season one, the Chappelle show sold more DVDs than any other show in the history of the world. And, and you're like, well, that's like history. So it's just like this weird stuff goes on. 
and you just you know you're just an actor who packs a lunch and goes to work and all of a sudden you're in something that's kind of historic i mean there's another i was in a third watch that's only aired once uh even though that shows in syndication i've never gotten another residual i was the first this might i don't know freak out your audience i was the first man who was involved in a man-on-man rape that happened on camera. So I raped an actor (laughs) in a scene, and it was, I guess, disturbing enough that audiences complained vociferously, and that show never re-ran in that season, and I've never received a residual, so I'm assuming it never runs uh, in syndication. But it's still a kind of weird history that <laughs> I was in that awful scene. Yeah, well, there's a there's a local actress I know that was in one Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And apparently it was a big deal, the episode she was in. So she gets like, you know, four cents checks or something, uh-huh. you know, like ridiculous and uh apparently this episode's really big in sweden so you never know you never know what you commit to and then it lives in the universe forever which i think that's that's very interesting so uh what did what convinced you at an early age that you wanted to do this for a living what was it that made you well, I tell you, it might have been brainwashing. Uh, <laughs> I was a, I was a, um, I was a kid that was prone to t- temper tantrums. I mean, we call them boys, I think, back then. Uh, but I would, <laughs> I would get furious if I lost a game of chess, or I don't know, and I would just get upset about things. And my mother dealt with this by undercutting by almost teasing. It was kind of maddening, but she would say, oh, you're so dramatic. You should get into drama when you go to high school. And it used to make me even more furious. But I heard this from the age of, I don't know, five to 12, 13. And then when I got to high school, there were two electives left because there was like a lottery of when you got to um, register for classes and the D's somehow were down at the bottom of the list. And so there was drama and there was journalism left. And oh. without, without a thought, I signed up for, for drama. I mean, it's, uh, calling it drama is weird because it's theater. But, um, and then when I went to college, I was told that 65% of the people that go into the school that I was going to don't declare a major. And I thought, well, I'm, that's crazy. I'm gonna buck the, the, the trend. So I signed up to be a theater major, thinking to myself, well, I'll, when I really figure out what I want to do, I'll change my major. And then nine years of college later, <laughs> I had an MFA and I was an actor. So, I mean, what made me make those decisions? It's interesting because I'm running, I ran into a friend here from high school who, who said to me, I, I knew all my life, I, as soon as I knew you, I knew you were going to be an actor. As soon as I saw you do plays in high school, I knew you were going to be an actor. And I was like, that's interesting because I don't remember knowing that. I just remember continuing to follow the, that particular path until I realized I was out of other choices. 
Yeah. Well, sometimes people say, you know, well, this is the only thing I can do. So I'm lucky that I get paid for it because what else, you know, could I do? Yeah. I, I don't know what else I'd be happy doing, but, but I'm glad I'm doing this. I mean, I, I you know, for a while I used to do, cause I'm also a playwright. And so I would say to people, well, I've got writing, I got playwriting to fall back on, which is equally, you know, magical to, you know, it's alchemy, both, both jobs are alchemy. You don't, people ask, how do I do, how do I get where you are? Or how do I get build a career? Like there's no path that you just, you can't follow anyone else's footsteps because it's just, there's a, there's a series of sort of seemingly random magical things that have to happen. And, and they happen the other way. Like I, when I graduated from, from grad school, there was a writer's strike and nobody was taking on new clients because they had movie and TV stars who were clamoring to do plays because there was no film and TV. And my class came out and the year before us, we, I think the actors averaged about eight or 10 or 12 meetings with agents. And I got one, some of my classmates got none. Some, a couple, the ones who looked very young got two or three, but nobody came out and was meeting with the big agencies. So I thought that kind of retarded an entire generation or uh, one year of actors who may have had more luck early. And so a, a year after I graduated, half my class had stopped acting because there was nothing for them to do. And I got in the acting company on, on a roll of the dice because I had I was working in Central Park carrying spears for Kevin Klein and Blythe Danner and Much Ado About Nothing. And then that led to Brian Murray casting me in the acting. So I had work, but no agent. And so that could have, I mean, I, I still look back at that and go, wow, I, you watch the opportunities that some, not many, but some young actors have coming right out of grad school. And we, didn't even the Juilliard kids and the NYU kids were struggling to secure agents. So it's all it's alchemy and there's no real map roadmap that anybody could follow. Interesting. So uh, during the pandemic, did you go back to writing? Yeah, I wrote a ton. I wrote so much. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I have five plays that are ready to go. I wrote three, I wrote an entire season of a streaming show, I, uh, 10 episodes. I wrote two, um, uh, well, one of them could be, a, one, one of them, no, not enough people, not enough of the main characters are left alive at the end, so you can't have a second season. It's a mini series. The other one, uh, you could turn it into a series, but it sort of wants to be a mini series. Yeah, I mean, just a ton of stuff. Interesting. That was a, that was a very interesting time. And that also bringing back to the rep references, that's when Steve Wolf died. Yeah. During the pandemic. And so it was like, nobody knew he was sick, you know, and all of a sudden it was like, what? Yeah. No, I was, I was really sad to hear it. We had a yeah. memorial in New York uh, at a, at a restaurant. Um, a number of us, got together uh, and just, you know, told stories. 
Yeah, because I'm sure you had a great relationship with him because you were here for three rep shows and um, them all. Yeah. yeah, and Red and uh, All the Way were fantastic. And Well, I tell you, I thought, because I had done that horrible Boy Meets Girl, and I'd been called in by Steve a number of times um, over the years to audition, and I kept thinking, he doesn't remember me until I walk in the room, and when I walk in the room, he goes, oh, that's that actor from that terrible show, and that's why I never got cast. But I ran it by him, and he's like, no, I have no idea who was in that Boy Meets Girl. So I had built a whole, you know, narrative. Scenario in your head. Well, this is why. <laughs> and then Red came along, and, and I remember Ed Stern was also in the room because there was a co-pro with Cincinnati Playoffs in the Park. And they thought they were going to have to find, they didn't think they were going to find the actor to play that part. I'm not sure what the criteria was or what they thought they couldn't find, but um I was, it was nice to be in that room to watch both those men kind of kind of sit up <laughs> during the odd. It's always a good sign when when you walk in and people look. What they do is they look bored. What they are is probably frustrated. And then uh, if you it's happened to me at least twice. I just auditioned for uh, dinner with friends and I just watched this table sort of sit up as the audition was going on and it also happened during red and and you're like okay well if i don't get this something's <laughs> something's weird so yeah it was a really fun part to do so the black rep has uh the last couple of years have have produced some outstanding productions and in fact the st louis theater circle they have won last year two other productions tied for best drama jitney and um what was the other one? Was it the African Company Presents Richard III? I, I can't remember. But the last couple of years, they have been crushing it with a great theater, also, uh, acc um, you know, accolades. Mm -hmm. And uh, last year, I, I do these awards every year. And last year, I gave them the company, you know, the company of the year and that. And so now... Uh, this is opening the 47th season. And what is it like to work with Ron? Because he's also multifaceted. Like you're like, he acts, he directs, he writes. What is it like? What kind of uh, environment does he create for such a production like this? Well, it's warm. There's laughs, um, which I think is always important. I mean, sometimes when you're doing a comedy, uh, it's more serious in the room because comedy's hard work. Um, but I generally find a, a warm, uh, funny room is like, I mean, we call it's a play. We call it a play. And if we're not playing, if we're not, I mean, you know, I've heard people say acting's not fun. Acting's impossible. You want fun, go play in a sandbox. But I don't agree. Uh, so, uh, you know, he's warm, he's open, he's, he gives you room. He, he waits to give you, um, notes so that, so that, and which is always valuable for an actor. You get to try a few things, get to work things out yourself. And once you've sort of sifted through a number of choices or possibilities, then it's so much easier to take a note. 
you know, you work with some directors who sort of know what they want up front and they start giving you the what and the how on the second rehearsal, you're always frustrated that you never got to explore your own first impulses. And then even if they're right, you want to be able to do them and then discard them for a, for a director's concept, if need be, rather than never get to try them. So Ron was, was open and it's just, I mean, look, he's an actor. So most actors like to work without a director's thumb on them. So he doesn't put his thumb on you. And if he has to, it's later when you've already, when you're ready for it. Aha. Uh -huh. That so is, yeah. No, that's, that's wonderful to hear because all the young folk that work with him just always love uh, and, and, you know, give him a lot of credit mm -hmm. for giving them opportunities and, you know, this is the 47th year that this is happening. So in your uh, research about LBJ and now by now you know him backwards and forwards and all that, what was the most surprising thing to learn about LBJ? Well, his, <laughs> I guess the most surprising was his, his sexual escapades in the Oval Office. Oh, he was very... Uh, and this is this came. I, I haven't read this. This came from my father-in-law, who was uh, a young lawyer in the Justice Department. There's a picture of him shaking hands with LBJ, and he was around. Uh, he was around in Washington all that time. And apparently, Mr. Johnson would walk up. Never his own secretary, but he would walk up to someone in the secretary pool, lean in down, and whisper in their ear. Something along the lines of your president needs you. And apparently there was a cot set up in a cloakroom or some room near the Oval Office for this purpose. And according to my father-in-law and my mother-in-law, who was in local politics in Maryland, uh, she's a member of the House, this was, this was fairly common knowledge. Uh, but of course, the press left that kind of scandal out of the press because that was personal and it's nobody's business. So that was a little shocking <laughs> to me. I mean, it shouldn't have been, I guess. Uh, that time, women in the workforce were, <laughs> boy, often thought of as, as convenient. Well, Mad Men, watch what Mad Men. Then you, you've got that period, you know, done. One one doesn't think of this particular guy as a, um, you know, ladies scenario, man, but apparently uh, power does what power does. Well, that's interesting. I would highly recommend that you watch Lady Bird Diaries. Okay. It's on Hulu. If you have Hulu, it's really good. I don't have it here, but I do have it at home. So, okay. Yeah. It's, it's uh, fascinating about her place. You know, she was, she was right there. Yeah. For all these important things. And uh, she is one of the reasons that we have an environmental protection agency. Very fascinating. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, yeah. And, it, and, and, and she tells him to his face uh, of some interesting things, you know, like she critiques his uh, speeches and things like, well, you should have done that. You shouldn't. Have. It's, it's really interesting. So that's an aside on LBJ. 
but why do you like this place so much? What what do you hope people take away from? Well, I don't I don't really know what to say about what I hope people take away from it. That's that's sort of that <laughs> that's a path that's kind of maddening if you're really worried about it. So, I mean, something about voting rights, something about inequality, something about you know uh, the dangers of government overreach or underreach, depending on your point of view on letting people participate in a democracy. But um, uh, I like the play. I tell you, you know, you talked about how many scenes there are. All the Way had about twice as many. Yeah. And there's scenes, so, and I think it's a terrific play, um, Schenken wrote. Um, what is is fun in a different way here is that the scenes are longer. It's like in that play, a guy came in, you had five lines, he left, someone else comes in, and it's like this sort of piling up effect. This play, because it dealt with all the topics of the uh, LBJ's presidency. This the Dixiecrats. One, yeah. This one's all concentrated on just the voting rights. And so and so the scenes are allowed to breathe a little bit. And, I, you know, I, I, I just done um, Doll's House Part 2, and I... And I remember saying, oh, this is like home because all your life as an actor, when you're in school or acting class, all you do are two character scenes. That's all you do. That's you work on in class. And it's just, I mean, occasionally you get to do red where it's a two character play, but that felt different because that was a huge, you know, 97 minute arc. Whereas these scenes feel like exactly like home, exactly like, the, the scenes are long enough that they're not short, but short enough that there's a beginning, middle and end and an arc to it. And you get to play just like you played in school when you didn't yet know how to work. You're trying to learn how to work. And now to get to do those kinds of scenes and know how to work, it, it really just feels like uh, going home. Well, good. I one of the things that I liked was remembering who Annie Lee Cooper was because I had forgotten. Yeah. So this play brings out that she actually did punch Sheriff Jim Campbell. And I went and looked up all these people after the play to see what happened to him. And he didn't live very well. No, he he lived long. But Al Lingo, the the head of the Alabama Highway Patrol, didn't live very long. Right. I didn't know that. Yeah. No. Well, they removed him because they had to uh, after he beat the, you know, he had the state troopers pummel these right. peaceful protesters. And then uh, Jim Clark, who's played so unctuously by Eric Dean White, uh, he lived to 84 but he was removed like they all had the short term like oh he left in 66 he left in 67 so yeah. it's interesting to see these people so i encourage people to look up what happened and we all know what happened to john lewis and mm -hmm. james foreman and andrew young and and that so i just think it's a it's a, it's a fascinating time in history that we can't forget and if it just gets people to register to vote i'll be i'll be <laughs> You yeah. know, You're really, really sure. happy. But uh, welcome back to St. Louis. I hope you get to enjoy 
some of the fine things. What's your favorite thing to do when you're here? Uh, well, I love to go for hikes. So I've been um, uh, going uh, everywhere. Uh, I was uh, that uh, sculpture garden that you have is pretty. I, I'm, I'm walking through it going, what a great idea. <laughs> oh, yeah. Lumiere? Lomire. Yeah, Lomire. I think people call it Lomire. I call it Lumiere because like, I don't I don't know. Yeah. I mean, uh, one of my favorite things to do is watch Eric Dean White's performance <laughs> in this play. He's it just kills me. I think it's he's hysterical and he's playing the worst people in the world. <laughs> but yeah, I, he is. Well, I told him uh, on uh, opening night, I said, you're more frightening uh, as these characters than you are, than you were as Satan. <laughs> he played Satan in the last days of Judas Iscariot, and he won the St. Louis Theater Circle Award because he he had some charm as Saint Satan besides the menace. Here, mm -hmm. he's just full-out, hot-headed, intolerant bigot. Right. And, somehow... and, and knowing what you know about George Wallace, to see him get so upset smoking the cigarettes and saying the f-bomb all the time yeah it's it's hard to believe that we lived in a period where these guys just ruled with well no it's not that it's hard. hard to believe we're living in the period now <laughs> well i know because um i heard somebody refer to it as jim crow 2.0 mm -hmm. and i don't think that's far off no i don't either and so um, I just always I'm I'm just yesterday was a good time to reflect on uh, Martin Luther King on what he said. And I always remember in the, during the past. Well, we'll just say decade, but about how um, if the silence, you know, if if you do nothing, you will remember the silence of your friends. Just do nothing. And, you know, I looked up a bunch of Martin Luther King quotes from that period, and it's so true. It is so true. But he, um, I'm going to put in my, uh, I'm doing an article about Friday night with the photos from the opening night, but I'm also giving information out about the civil rights. Okay. Good. Trail, like, you know, dig further. Like, this is where you go for stuff, because it's still fascinating to me that we have to, if you look up Selma, if you go to Selma, that town is full of museums now commemorating everything. There's a jail cell that's a, that's a historic site. The Ed, Edmund Pettus Bridge is a national historic landmark. So it's very interesting that all these things now are honored and uh, part of part of our American fabric. And I just think that it's good to remind people. Uh, Martin Luther King himself, he had to, he was in jail. What was that, the Birmingham jail? Wasn't he there for like two weeks? Didn't yeah. he write that letter? Yeah, I don't recall how long he was there. I, I just came across his mugshot again. Uh, I, yeah. Yeah. And he gave the, he gave this, uh, if you look, if you have time today, there was a, a young high school poet 
that was on the talk show, The Talk, yesterday. And she read a poem that it should go viral like the 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 young poet that was at Biden's inauguration. Her poem yesterday about Martin Luther King. It's really, really good. So I just think that there's more work to do. And I'm glad that uh, the play kind of spotlights that because it's easy to get complacent. And it's easy, especially in Missouri. Why especially in Missouri? Because we just have a school district that uh, is uh, taking out the black history classes, taking oh, out okay. black history from the c classes. And it's right here. It's like within it with it's in the metropolitan area. Yeah, it's a it's unbelievable, isn't it? And the banned books. Yeah, because you're afraid of because you're afraid of the others that, because you have been taught to be fearful of the others demonizing well, I, the others yeah, i saw a meme that said um this is happening because grandparents don't want their granddaughters to know what they did <laughs> but history yeah well if you can't learn from history etc oh yeah well that's why the that's why the you know bizarre world but but thank you so much for your time. I'm so happy and I'm so sorry that you didn't get to meet Carl. And then Chaz, who you met Friday night, he had a big meeting because okay. they have day jobs. How dare they? Of <laughs> you know. all the nerve. <laughs> you know. yeah. Lovely meeting you. Yes, thank you. I, I was hoping that you remember because it was, I couldn't believe time flies. I thought, when did I interview you? And that was 2015. Okay. Yeah. So, and I remember distinctly because you guys, because that was a huge cast. You had, I think, almost 40 people. Uh, no, there were characters. Not. They were double, though. No, there were most. There were way more than 40. There was like, there were 19 actors, probably 60 characters. That was crazy. Yeah, well. <laughs> You that know, was, I remember that that was so daunting because that was like one of the biggest casts the rep had ever had. And that set was so good. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. Uh, when we did Great Society in New York, well, I was understudying Cox, but I was also on stage. I believe I played six people in that show. So, again, I think there were around 19, I think there were 18 actors in that, maybe 19 in that one too. And probably 70, 75 people, 75 characters, like just one after another. Well, post-pandemic, uh, people are, uh, you know, there's been smaller casts. Yeah, smaller casts, less shows, more local actors hired. Uh, you get the sense that artistic directors are looking for projects for their friends who have been out of work for a long time. Uh, the turnover in artistic directors, like, like I worked at the rep, you know, I've worked at a number of places a number of times. As soon as the artistic director leaves, it's like you've never, you've never worked there. So you've got to sort of rebuild your career every time, not every time, but there was a big turnover. Like Ed Stern left Cincinnati and uh, Steve uh, is not here. Uh, 
in St. Louis and uh, I have a theater uh, upstate New York. I worked at a lot that that artistic director retired and you're just like looking around going, oh, I don't know anybody anymore. <laughs> I mean, people that were hiring me. So, you know, it's just, it's fine. It's just part of the alchemy. Yeah, we'll break a leg. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we'll sign up. I hope everybody's keeping warm and safe and please register to vote. Bye.